0: I want to take us for a moment into a boardroom of a major corporation. The economy had taken a significant downturn, and it was clear that the business of this company could not continue as usual. And so the members of the board were all gathered together and all had conflicting ideas as to what they should do to address the present crisis. And each one was shouting over the other, each one loudly trying to give their own opinion as to what should happen. And at the end of the table the chairman of the board sat quietly. He was a man in his 70s, didn't say much, but he certainly had more experience and more knowledge and wisdom than anyone else in the room. As this whole din of opinions and loud voices filled the conference room, the chairman raised his hand. And when he did, the whole room went silent. They all wanted to hear what he would have to say. And it was clear at that moment, Who was the authority in the room? Who really everyone respected and listened to? And that word authority is really our key word this morning, our central concern. You see, authority is not assertiveness or uh, always having to get your own opinion known. No, authority, I think of it as the person who doesn't have to say much. But when they speak, everybody listens, See, according to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, authority is the power to influence or command thought, opinion, or behavior. It is both the right and the power over people. Now, we would be foolish and arrogant if we ignored authority. I mean, if you simply ignore the police officer or the speeding ticket, you're going to have a lot worse than a fine on your hands. See, the greater the authority, the more important that we take it seriously. And there's no higher or more important authority or final word than our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the main idea I want to drive home this morning. We cannot ignore the authority of Jesus. We cannot ignore the authority of Jesus. And yet that's exactly what we see happening all around us today, is it not? The world runs by in total ignorance and rejection of Christ's authority. So the world has no time to submit themselves to Christ. They, they really don't care what Jesus has to say or what he commands. Everyone does pretty much what they think is best. Everybody does what's right in their own eyes. People live as their own masters, doing their own will, carrying out their own desires. The world does not acknowledge Christ or bow the knee to him. Unfortunately, we find the same thing true in the church at times. Now, the church, of course, professes to follow Christ and recognizes him as Lord. But in many practical ways, I'm afraid, the church and believers practically deny the lordship of Christ. And they live not according to his authority, but according to themselves. There are millions of dusty Bibles to prove that People are simply ignoring the words of Christ. Many churches have abandoned the teaching of Scripture and replaced it with highly encouraging sort of pick-me-up type messages. A lot of people see the Bible as that way. It's just a a book of encouragement, of comfort, something to kind of get me uh, inspired. Rather than seeing this as the Word of God, which has commands which I must obey... People are simply ignoring the authority of Jesus. About half a century ago, a theologian named A.W. Tozer wrote a brief booklet entitled The Waning Authority of Christ in the Churches. It easily could have been written today. The whole thesis of the book, he laments the sad state of the church and how the church rarely submits to the authority of Christ. And in practice, it goes its own way. It does what it wants. Yes, the church business meeting may start off with prayer, They may even mention Jesus, but at the end of the day, the operation of the church is not something which is under Christ's authority. It's under the churches. Here's what he writes. Among the gospel churches, Christ is now, in fact, little more than a beloved symbol. All hail the power of Jesus' name as the church's national anthem, and the cross, her official flag. But in the week-by-week services of the church and the day-by-day conduct of its members, someone else, not Christ makes the decisions under proper circumstances christ is allowed to say come unto me all who are heavy laden or let not your heart be troubled but when the speech is finished someone else takes over those in actual authority decide the moral standards of the church as well as the objectives and all the methods employed to achieve them because of long and meticulous organization Listen to this. It is now possible for the youngest pastor just out of seminary to have more actual authority in the church than Jesus Christ. So I think it's a fair question for us to ask this morning. Do we submit to the authority of Jesus? Is our church led by Christ, or are we in charge? Are we willing to hear and obey what the Lord has to say? Unfortunately, though we know what Jesus says, I think many of us know what Jesus says, We choose not to submit to his authority. We say things like this. Well, I know Christ wants me to love that person, but, or I know I should share the gospel, but, or I know I should live such and such a way, but, so we acknowledge the will of God and yet we decide not to submit to his authority. Well, Christ is the authority and we cannot ignore him. And that is the main thought I want to drive home from Mark chapter 1. In fact, these verses 21 to 28 that we read just a moment ago, the key word is authority. You'll see it right in verse uh, 22, and then again in verse 27, as they are amazed at his authority. And Christ is the authority we cannot ignore. His teaching, his miracles, and particularly his power over the demonic here, shows forth that he is powerful, that he is an authority. I want us to look at these verses. Now, now you'll remember in the previous section, and this was a few weeks back, but in verses 16 through 20, Jesus had called his first disciples. Having arrived in Galilee, he begins to gather this group who will follow him and learn from him and hear his teaching and walk in it. However, when we get to verse 21, we really see the beginnings of the first day-to-day ministry of Jesus. In fact, you'll you'll notice that in verse 21, all the way down to verse 39, represents one long day in Jesus' life. It's a period of about 24 hours of ceaseless activity for Jesus. And we're just going to take the first episode, the first scene from this long, busy day. Let's look at it. Starting in verse 21, the Bible says, Then they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. We'll stop there at those first two verses. This was probably a fairly common scene in the life of Jesus. Synagogue on a Sabbath, preaching with power, the response of amazement. It was all pretty common, but I'd like us to learn a couple lessons from the scene that unfolds. First, when Jesus speaks, we must listen. When Jesus speaks, we must listen. Again, if we ignore what Jesus teaches, if we ignore what Jesus says, then we really reject his authority, don't we? Now, we saw previously the calling of the disciples, but here it says that he went into Capernaum. And we have this remarkable testimony that takes place here of Jesus preaching and particularly the authority with which he preached. And yet, it's interesting, we don't have a single word of his sermon, do we? We have that Jesus preached, but nothing that he said is actually recorded. Now, we know from other places the types of things Jesus was preaching about. In fact, a few verses earlier, back in verse 15... We have a brief summary of Jesus' message. He was preaching on the kingdom. He was preaching on repentance and faith. And so that was probably the case here. He was preaching on those themes, but we have the reaction. Now, let's take a closer look at verse 21. It says, then they went into Capernaum. Now, the city of Capernaum sits on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. It was a fishing town. Uh, In fact, several harbors have been discovered near ancient Capernaum that extended far out into the Sea of Galilee, which was a lake. And so there was a lot of fishing. Fishing was the main industry around the sea, and particularly in Capernaum. But what made the city really interesting was the fact that it sat along a major trade route. The Via Maris connected two major trade routes, and that road went right through Capernaum. In fact, that was the reason a major tax office was established, In Capernaum. All the the cross travel from the trade route would stop and be taxed in Capernaum. So it was a small city, but it was a significant city. A lot of activity took place there. Now, when the Bible says he, or excuse me, they went into Capernaum, so Jesus and his disciples, this was a familiar town to them. Peter and Andrew, this was their hometown. But when the Bible says they were going to Capernaum, this wasn't just a weekend visit. It wasn't just a stop on Jesus' ministry tour. No, Jesus located his his ministry in Capernaum. This became his strategic headquarters. And, And that's what we'll see for the rest of the Gospel of Mark. While Jesus is ministering in Galilee, his headquarters is in Capernaum. This is where he always returns to. And again, it makes sense because along that major trade route, there would be a great number of people, and, and that would carry that message of Christ across the ancient world. All right. When we get to verse 21, it says, he immediately went to the Sabbath. On Sabbath, he entered the synagogue. Now, I hope we understand this. The Sabbath is not Sunday. The Sabbath is Saturday, and it was the Jewish holy day. It was the day set apart by God in the Old Testament that the people would worship. It was a day where they would cease from labor and work. And so as such, the people would go to the synagogue. Now, the synagogue was different than the temple. There was one temple, it was in Jerusalem, that was the place of sacrifice, the place where the priests served, and yet all the little communities around would have their own synagogue. Now, the synagogue started during the Babylonian captivity, and it wasn't a replacement for the temple but it was a supplement to the temple. So you wouldn't necessarily travel to the temple every weekend. It was much too far for those living in Galilee. But you would go to the synagogue on the Sabbath. And it was a gathering place. It was a house of meeting. And a service would be very simple. You would come. There would be the reading of the the law. There would be uh, prayers offered and so on. And it was kind of the center of the community. The the synagogue was used as a schoolhouse and a a meeting assembly hall. Uh, And as such, there was a leader of the synagogue, but most of it was run by the people. In fact, to establish a synagogue in a community, you needed 10 adult Jewish males to be able to form. As long as you had that, then there was room to create a synagogue. And so there was a synagogue at Capernaum. Now, Archaeologists have t- uncovered just that, a synagogue in Capernaum, which the, the modern structure which you see there today is typically dated to the 4th century AD. But underneath that structure there, there is a basalt foundation, which many people believe is the same foundation upon which the synagogue in Jesus' day was built. So Christ enters what probably looked similar to this, perhaps a little bit smaller, he enters this synagogue on the Sabbath. And there he begins to teach. Now, in the synagogue, when you would go in, one of the hallmarks of the the whole synagogue was the Torah scroll. The Torah means law, and it was the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses, And that scroll was kept in a very special place. It was a wooden box called the Ark, kind of like the Ark of the Covenant. And it was like a cabinet, and the scroll would be kept in there. And on the Sabbath day, they would bring it out, and someone in the congregation would read from the scroll. Now, if there was a rabbi, for instance, who was visiting, he would be given the honor of reading. And since Jesus is the newest member of Capernaum, the the community, and since Jesus fame is beginning to spread, undoubtedly they asked him to read the the Torah scrolls. And so he begins to teach. Look at verse 21. Immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and he taught. Listen to what people heard, though. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now, again, Mark does not record the message, but he records the reaction. The people were absolutely struck with a sense of amazement. It's it's kind of like a bewildered astonishment at what Jesus says. Uh, In fact, the word here translated amazed or astonished really has as its root to be struck, like to be hit. It's almost like they were just jarred, almost smacked over the head by the teaching of Jesus. Uh, One New Testament scholar says this. Of the word, He says, Jesus' teaching struck the people like a blow, knocking them out of their normal state of mind. So to put it in kind of modern vernacular, you might say, Jesus blew their minds. It was, it was something like they had never heard before. And what was it that was so amazing? Was it the content of his preaching? No, not so much. In fact, what seems to really strike them is the authority of Jesus' teaching. When he spoke, they had to listen. He spoke with authority. And in fact, it's intentionally contrasted with the scribes. He taught as one having authority and not like the scribes. You see, they were used to a certain type of teaching that was typical, characteristic of the scribes. So the scribes and Pharisees were two groups that often we find together in the New Testament. The scribes were sort of like uh, copyists They were the sort of uh, lawyers, the ones who studied the law. And and, uh, they were oftentimes teachers as well. And when they taught, there are two things that are characteristic of the way that the Pharisees or the scribes taught. Uh, Number one, they oftentimes quoted authorities. So if you were a scribe, they would oftentimes teach by saying, well, if we go back through all the records... Rabbi so-and-so said this and Rabbi so-and-so said that and they would kind of rehearse this whole history of um, rabbinic writing and rabbinic teaching on a given passage. It was really meticulous and really um, probably boring. Uh, In fact, you'll find the same thing today. If you go to uh, like an academic society, uh, there's a lot of like academic papers that are read And it's probably the most pedantic, boring exercise ever because it's all these footnotes and, you know, citing this person's research and that person's research and citing this source and that source. And, uh, you know, it's good, I suppose, for the sake of science and moving things forward. But, boy, is it boring. And that's, that's what this probably sounded like. This rabbi says that and this rabbi thinks this. Here's the other thing that was characteristic, though, of the scribes' teaching. They were obsessed with the minutia of the law. So they got into all these nitty-gritty, little, uh, seemingly obscure and purposeless arguments. A good example. So the Bible taught, the Old Testament taught, that you weren't to work on the Sabbath. So what did that mean? They came up with all kinds of elaborate explanations of what qualified as work and what you couldn't do or could do on the sabbath for instance you could not drag a walking stick behind you on the sabbath because the the stick in the dirt would create a furrow and a furrow is like plowing and plowing is work and therefore you couldn't drag a walking stick because it was too much like work and this this was the kind of stuff that people were used to hearing in the synagogue now contrast that jesus comes preaching not with Citing this rabbi and that rabbi. He doesn't come talking about some kind of really silly explanation of what qualifies as work. No, he goes right to the heart of what really matters. And they're probably thinking, we never heard someone preach or teach like this. So Jesus' teaching was vastly different than what they were used to. So what characterized Jesus' teaching? Well, let me give it to you in three words. First of all, when Jesus taught, what made it so authoritative was because it was true. What he taught was true. Again, any teaching with authority must be true or else it's not really authoritative, is it? No, Jesus came speaking the truth and nothing hits harder and has more effect than the truth. And I think people saw when they heard Jesus speak that it was a ring of the truth in what he said. Because Christ spoke, and when he spoke, it was the truth. The truth is that which corresponds to reality, as God sees it. It's, you know, some people would sugarcoat what people would sugarcoat all kinds of topics, for instance, sin in the Bible. You know, rather than calling sin sin, we might come up with another way to express it and kind of back down from things. No, Jesus spoke the truth. Even on uncomfortable topics, Jesus s- exposed what was true. Now, that probably made Christ's teaching a little bit hard to swallow at times. Because again, he didn't come trying to cover over things or try to say things in a really delicate way. He spoke the truth, but his words were always true. And it was probably a breath of fresh air in a world full of lies, and it still is, isn't it? Uh, The world we live in is full of lies. And so when someone comes speaking the truth and declaring the truth, there's something very refreshing and very wonderful about it if you love the truth. Now, if you love darkness... You're going to be offended by that. And Jesus made many enemies throughout his time. But he was authoritative because what he spoke was true. Secondly, what he spoke was clear. When Jesus spoke, he spoke straightforward truth. Yeah, he used illustrations. He used metaphors and figures of speech and parables and so on. But his subject was to expose rather than conceal. Have you ever had the experience of sitting down and listening to somebody talk and you have no idea what they actually said. And you're like, okay, that really wasn't that helpful, right? Because yeah, they said, used a lot of big words, they talked and I I couldn't even tell you after, five minutes afterwards what they were talking about. Well, that kind of strategy suits politicians because they say a lot of stuff but they don't really want anyone to understand what they're saying. But not much is gained from casting confusion. When Jesus spoke, it was with divine clarity. There was no mystery as to what he said. His words were clear. Repentance meant repentance. Faith meant faith. He wasn't trying to speak in codes. Jesus spoke the truth, and he spoke it clearly. Again, they were used to this, well, you know, Rabbi so-and-so said this, and, you know, another one disagrees with that. At the end of the day, I imagine a lot of people walked away from the synagogue feeling like, Um, what was I supposed to do with that? I don't don't even remember what was said. No, Jesus spoke the truth, and he spoke it clearly. Uh, I read a story from R. Kent Hughes, quoted from uh, Harry Ironside. Harry Ironside was a longtime pastor at the Moody Church in Chicago, and he was once confronted by somebody who told him that he was not a good preacher. And Ironside kind of inquired, you know, what about his preaching fell short? And the fellows replied, well, I understood everything that you said. I guess in this guy's mind, you know, a great preacher was somebody who used lofty language and didn't really get it. Ironside, however, took it as a compliment. Because the truth in clarity is a powerful thing. Finally, though, what made Jesus so authoritative? He was convicting. He was convicting. It was probably one of the reasons why they were astonished. It plowed right to the heart. No one could walk away from Jesus' teaching without feeling the impact on them. The ball was in their court now. How would they respond? You know, When the word of God is proclaimed, whether by Jesus or here from this church, it is with a similar authority. Not because I'm Jesus, not because I'm an authority on anything, but because this word is the word of God. And when it's taught, it is the truth. And when it is made clear, it should convict So we can speak as a church with authority because we have the word of God with us. When Jesus preached, he didn't say, thus saith the Lord. He didn't have to, right? Because every time he opened his mouth, it was thus saith the Lord. But when we preach the scriptures, it comes with authority because of its author. Theologian D.A. Carson writes, authority is integral to the notion of preaching. Namely, it is clear human utterance of God's message. Its authority is bound up with the fact that it is God's message. So when Jesus speaks, as he does here in the Gospels, we must listen. When we encounter the teaching of Jesus in the Bible, we can't just walk away from it or ignore it. He is the authority. Yet rather than be amazed, some people just yawn and shrug. Some people just completely ignore it and move on. Poll after poll shows that, in many cases, the worldview of so-called Christians differs only slightly from their secular counterparts. Now, it's likely that we have become deaf to the words of Jesus. Jesus is exalted in theory, but in practice, no one is actually listening to him. Listen to what Tozer says in his little booklet, Winning Waning Authority of Christ in the Churches. He uses the illustration of Abraham Lincoln. He says, a fair parallel would be the influence of Abraham Lincoln over the American people. Honest Abe is still the idol of the country. His likeness is a kind of rugged face, homely, beautiful. It appears everywhere. It's easy to grow misty-eyed over him. Children are bought up on stories of his love and honesty and humility. But after we've gotten control of our emotions, what have we left? no more than a good example, which as it recedes into the past becomes more and more unreal and exercises less and less influence. Every scoundrel is ready to wrap Lincoln's long black coat around him. In the cold light of political facts in the United States, the constant appeal to Lincoln by politicians is a cynical joke. Notice what he's saying there? He's saying, just like in today, imagine if we had Lincoln with us You know, everybody wants to say, oh, yeah, Lincoln, he's a great president, great man. But if he stood up to address the United States today, I imagine people would say, sit down and shut up to Lincoln. And so it is with Christ. Everybody likes to hang a picture of Christ on their wall. Everybody likes to say, yes, Christ was a wonderful man. But as soon as Jesus has something to say to us, we say, no, I'd rather rather not listen. See, if Christ is the authority, then we must listen to what he has to say. I love what happens in John chapter 6. Later on in Jesus' ministry, he's teaching, and some of his teaching is very difficult to accept. Because of that, a lot of the followers turn away and leave. Jesus turns to his disciples and says, Do you also want to go away? Simon Peter wisely answers, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That's it. If we turn away from Christ, if we're not willing to listen to what he has to say, who are we going to go to? If Jesus' words are too difficult or too challenging, where will we go? Religion? Psychology? Media? Politics? Philosophy? You're not going to find the eternal words of eternal life there. They are with Christ, and when he speaks, we must listen. Secondly, though, what Jesus commands, we must obey. What Jesus commands, we must obey. Now, this certainly goes arm in arm with listening to him. But listening and obeying are two different things, are they not? We must obey what he says. I want to continue in this passage. Look at verse 23. Jesus is teaching the people are amazed at his authority. Then in verse 23, now, there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. There's this outburst of the demon that happens here in the synagogue of Capernaum. Now, the verb tenses in verse 23 indicate that this happened while Jesus was teaching. So Jesus is teaching, the people are amazed at his authority, and then suddenly, right in the midst of it, there's this outburst, there's this interruption. I haven't been preaching for a real long time, but I've been preaching long enough to know that interruptions sometimes happen when you're preaching, uh, especially for anybody who has uh, the opportunity to preach in a, in a nursing home setting. There's all kinds of interruptions that happen. People just say whatever they want to say. Well, that happens here in the synagogue of Capernaum. There's a sudden outburst, and everybody looks over their shoulder, and this person cries out, and it's a dramatic clash that takes place. I love what James Edwards says describing the scene. He says, In the synagogue of Capernaum, the kingdom of God goes head-to-head with the unseen, though ultimate opponent, the power structure of evil. The acid test of Jesus' authority comes in 123. Even more impressive than Jesus' authority as a teacher is his supremacy over the supernatural realm. Look what the Bible says in verse 23. There was a man in their synagogues. Now, I don't know if this guy regularly attended or if this was just, he just sneaked in on this particular Sabbath in order to confront Jesus. It's a little scary to think that this guy may have been coming week after week with an unclean spirit and never heard anything that would have disturbed him. But he did this day and he cries out in a loud voice, interrupting everybody. And I imagine everybody looks. At this man, and then they all look at Jesus to see what he's going to do. Now, a couple of things to note here about this man. First of all, it's not the man who's talking, but the demon that he has. Uh, Mark's gospel, probably more than the others, depicts Christ in conflict with spiritual forces of wickedness who are seen opposing Christ and his mission. In this case, the demon cries out, What what do you have to do? Or excuse me, what have we to do with you? And it's kind of an idiom, which, which basically means, what do we have in common? So basically what the demon is saying is, what are you doing here? This is our turf. This is our place. What do you think you're doing coming in here? You see, the world, in one sense, is the domain of Satan. You know, he is the prince and power of the air. He is the god of this age. And yet we also know that god, God's not kept from the earth. It's not like Satan has supreme power. Okay, so God is not uninvolved or impeded in carrying out his will. But in the coming of Christ, in a very tangible way, God in the flesh is stepping into Satan's only remaining domain and challenging him. So this demon says, what are you doing here? This is our, this is our place. And then he asks, have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the holy one of, his, of God. Since uh, the Greek language doesn't contain question marks, Uh, It's not entirely clear if this is a statement, as in, you have come to destroy us, or is it a question, have you come to destroy us? Well, either way, the demon recognizes that the coming of Christ is the downfall of his kingdom, and the evil reign of the evil one is threatened by Christ. You notice also that he says us, or we, in the verse, verse 24, Um, probably talking of all the demons. So Jesus' coming is a threat not just to him, but to the entire demonic realm. Then the demon says, I know who you are. See, the reason the demons tremble, and this demon in particular trembles, is because he, unlike the crowd around, knows that Jesus is the Holy One of God. In this case, the demon speaks the truth. Jesus really is the Holy One. But I also want to notice not only the outburst of the demon, but also the response of Jesus. The response of Jesus. Jesus rebuked him, verse 25, and saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. So Jesus does not accept the testimony of the demon, you know, who just said, You're the Holy One of God. Instead, he says, Be quiet, get out. And That's probably because demons are liars, right? If the people of Capernaum believed the statement, even though it's true, they could easily be deceived into believing anything communicated from the spiritual realm. And so Jesus silences the demon. All throughout Mark's gospel, he silences both people and demons who would try and share too much. It's kind of an interesting feature. We'll talk about it more as we study Mark's gospel. But what ought to astonish us and what astonished the people in the synagogue of Capernaum is the absolute power and authority of Jesus' words. He rebukes the demon and what happens? The demon immediately obeys. That was unusual, unprecedented for the time, because there were other so-called exorcists traveling around at this time. And They usually had really elaborate formulas. They they supposedly would free people from demons. But they never just commanded demons and the demons obeyed. No, they had these really elaborate, well-worked-out formulas that they would follow. And they were oftentimes kind of ridiculous. I read this one. Uh, This is one example of how uh, ancient exorcists would release a person from a demon. They were instructed to take a knife made of iron, tie it to a thorn bush by a braid of hair from the person who was supposedly possessed, and to do that three days in a row while saying some kind of incantation. Then on the third day, they were to go back and say a special formula that would drive the demon from the person's body. Another one I heard of, and this is even better, um, they would mix together some spices And they would hold it under a person's nose until the person sneezed. Now, when they sneezed, supposedly the demon came out. And then, once the demon was out, you had to say the magical words before it came back into them, and that would banish the demon. And this is what they were used to these weird practices. But not with Jesus. He simply says the word, and the demon must obey, he speaks with authority. Later on in the Gospels, we will read that Jesus speaks to the wind and the waves, and they obey him. They're instantly stilled when he speaks. This is an authority that is shocking by any measure. A person who commands the weather, have you ever tried to do that? Have you ever tried to command the rain to stop or the, the wind to stop blowing? Probably didn't do much, did it? No, because we don't have any control over the weather. We don't have any authority. Jesus does. Furthermore, we know from Scripture that Jesus was the one who created the world. He spoke and there was light. He has the authority to command demons and they must obey. If that's the case, if Jesus can command demons, waves, and even light itself, then doesn't Jesus have the right to command us? Well, Jesus commanded, the demon comes out, the man is thrashed about, he's delivered. Look at verse 27. We look at the reaction of the crowds. Verse 27, they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, what is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. So after this takes place, there probably was every mouth in the congregation was just hanging open. It says here that they were... Amazed, it's a little different word than used in verse 22. This word means amazed or dumbstruck, but it also has the idea of being terrified, frightened. You know, before they were amazed at his teaching, you know, we've never heard anything like this, but this is incredible. But now it's almost like they all take a step back and say, What are we dealing with here? A person who can command demons? A person who has incredible power and authority? They're, they're dumbstruck, terrified even, of what they're seeing. They're, they're not used to this. I, I think the lesson is this. What Jesus commands, we must obey. It says here, the people were questioning, you know, what, what authority is this? That he that he command unclean spirits and they obey him. And then his fame spreads, you know, which would be natural, right? Again, the point, Jesus commands we must obey. He has the authority to command earth and sky, things visible and things invisible, and we are his subjects. How dare we think that we can go our own way, choose to define ourselves, or determine whether or not we think his commands are worthy to be followed. So many people... Don't want to obey anyone but themselves. John R. W. Stott, in his book, Between Two Worlds, it's a great book on preaching. In it, he says this, Seldom, if ever, in its long history has the world witnessed such a self-conscious revolt against authority. You see, people want to, to obey themselves. That's it. They don't want to be told what to do. They certainly don't want to obey the words of Christ. Christ is the authority. You see, when he speaks, we must listen. What he commands, we must obey. It's not an option. It's not like we can just simply choose. It's not like Jesus is just one opinion among many. And we can say, you know what? Jesus has some good advice over here. and Dr. Phil has some good advice over here. And Oprah, you know, and collect our little kind of favorite sayings. That's not how it works. Jesus is the authority. And what he says and what he commands, we must obey. I read a story about a British diplomat who appeared in the court of the king of France. The French king was much impressed with this diplomat and enjoyed his presence, and so he invited him that next day to come join him for dinner. The diplomat bowed out, and the next day he arrived at the palace at the prescribed time for dinner. The king met him in the hall and said, what are you doing here? I I didn't expect to see you. The diplomat replied, well, did did your majesty not invite me to dine with you? The king replied, yes, but you did not answer my invitation. The diplomat wisely answered, a king's invitation is not to be answered, but to be obeyed. So it is with the words of Christ. It's not like we have to have an answer for it. It needs to be obeyed. What Jesus says, what he commands, what the scriptures say, we have no right to to simply challenge it or decide what we like or what we don't. We obey. So when we take a step back and see Christ in the Gospel of Mark, we see the one who is Lord of all, the absolute authority. The question is, do we submit to him? Jesus' words are not just to be amazed or stunned at, but obeyed. So what does it mean for us to submit to the authority of Jesus, let me offer two thoughts in closing. What does it mean for us to submit to the authority of Jesus? First, we must immerse ourselves in the Bible. Again, if we want to hear what Jesus has to say, if we're going to listen to the one who has all authority, we need to listen to his words, and they're here in the scriptures. We must immerse ourselves in the Bible, and unfortunately we get away from this sometimes. Where The Bible does collect dust on our shelf when it shouldn't. We need to be in the word, studying it, reading it. Again, I heard a story of a a grandchild was visiting her grandmother. Grandmother was sitting in a rocking chair reading the Bible, and the, the granddaughter looked up at her and said, Grandma, are you ever going to finish reading that book? And that's how it ought to be. We never finish reading it. It just goes on and on. It's the words of our Savior. The more we read them, the more we internalize them, the more we're listening to the one who has all authority. Secondly, not only must we immerse ourselves in the Bible, we must allow the Bible to shape our belief and conduct what we believe and how we live. This is so often where people get off. Yes, the Bible is a wonderful book, it has encouragement, it has inspiration. But when it comes to my conduct, the choices I make, the things I decide to do or not do, that's my decision. No, we must submit ourselves to the Bible, to the word of our great and authoritative God. What we believe and how we live should be shaped by the word. You see, Jesus is the authority. The question is, are we listening? The question is, are we obeying?